Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would be really helpful. My guest today is Charles Hudson, the managing partner and founder of Precursor Ventures, an early-stage venture capital firm focusing on investing in the first institutional round of investment for the most promising software and hardware companies. Some of their investments include The Athletic, Gooder, and CoStar. Prior to founding Precursor Ventures, Charles was a partner at SoftTech VC, co-founder and CEO at Bionic Panda Games, an Android-focused mobile game startup. He was also VP of Business Development for Serious Business, which was acquired by Zynga, and Director of Business Development at Gaia Interactive, among working at other really impressive companies. I had such a blast chatting with Charles and really looking forward to sharing this with you. So without further ado, here's Charles. Charles, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Charles. Thanks so much for taking the time. How did you get into venture capital? I went to school at Stanford and graduated sort of at the very tail end of Internet 1.0. And I worked at a company that is no longer with us called Excite at home. And my boss introduced me to her husband, who was then the head of the CIA's venture capital firm, Incutel. And that was my first introduction to venture capital. I knew very little about the business. I just knew I trusted my boss and her judgment and thought the idea of learning about venture capital through the lens of how the CIA views it would be an interesting kind of once in a lifetime job opportunity. So I, I took it and never looked back. And it was a great experience and a great introduction to venture capital. That's crazy that it started with the CIA. So tell me, how did Precursor come together? The real sort of key part of Precursor coming together was really the time that I spent at uh, Uncork, now known as SoftTech. So I joined the team at Uncork back at the end of 2010 slash beginning of 2011. And Mike, just to give you some context, like back then, a large seed round was a million bucks. And, you know, if you were raising a million and a half dollars in a seed round, that was sort of borderline irresponsible. That was a lot of money. It was a different time. Seed funds were smaller. Series A rounds were smaller too. And so what I noticed is that whole generation of early seed managers who got started in the late 2000s and had had some success were all getting larger and larger and larger with each subsequent fund that they raised. And one day I woke up and just realized, hey, all of the entrepreneurs that we used to back at a million dollars a pop, they just don't make sense for us anymore. And they don't make sense for us anymore, not because there aren't quality entrepreneurs who want to raise smaller rounds. It's that seed funds are larger now and you know, seed rounds are two to $3 million affairs, not million dollar affairs anymore. And structurally, many of the people who've been doing this work for a really long time, their funds have gotten so large that they can also no longer afford to spend time with those small companies. And it just became clear to me that there was a hole in the bottom of the market where if somebody had a fund that was really focused on those million dollar rounds and smaller, that they would have a lot of room to innovate and that they would be able to fill an important gap for entrepreneurs. And that was it. So I took the plunge and left Uncork and set up shop for Precursor and sort of we're, we're well on our way now. How do you think about kind of the ecosystem of early stage investing? You know, I think it's interesting when you start a venture fund, you never know which, which of your hypotheses are going to turn out to be true. 
What I will say is when I started Precursor, a lot of people told me, hey, you know what? You're just out of touch with the market. The good companies in the market raise these big seed rounds. There's a real risk that if you focus on these companies that can't raise as much or don't want to raise as much, that you're going to end up with a huge basket of adverse selection when it comes to companies and that that's going to be pretty tough. And, you know, the best founders are going to raise more money from the best firms and there's really no room for a new entrant. And uh, I just didn't agree with that hypothesis and we needed a word to use. And, you know, I think pre-seed was the word that has stuck. I don't really even know some days, candidly, what pre-seed means. I think old-fashioned seed rounds are what I would love to describe precursor as doing, but that's a bit of a mouthful. And so I think right now we live in a world where there's two, two kinds of startups. The ones that can raise two to $3 million from scratch. That's usually repeat founders or people who were low employee number count at big academy companies that you know, or people who have really, you know, VC friendly reputations. And then there's everybody else who I think is generally speaking going to raise a million dollars or so to build out their product and generate some evidence. And we focus decidedly on that latter bucket of companies. Of course, very different, but it reminds me of my conversation a little bit with Paul Martino at Bullpen. A different stage, he invests in post-seed, but he saw the opportunity at post-seed because there's a lot of companies coming out of that, out of coming the seed stage that did not have you know, the traction or metrics or uh, the revenue to be to raise a series A round, but needed post-seed round. And so he saw a lot of opportunity there. And it seems like you're seeing the opportunity, but on the other side before seed. And I consider Paul a friend and we've had a lot of fun talking about our journeys. And I think in a lot of ways I could take, if you substituted bullpen for precursor, I think all of that stuff is true. I think when Paul started, a lot of people said, oh, the only companies that are going to raise these post-seed rounds are ones that can't, you know, they're not good enough. And I think you fast forward five or seven years later and post-seed is a part of the ecosystem. It's perfectly, as many of our best companies raise rounds that are post-seeds. And so I think pre-seed isn't quite there yet as being, I think, kind of a fully embraced, legitimized part of the fundraising ecosystem. But uh, it's more fun to be there before everyone else has figured it out. It's very, very fascinating. Talk to me about your due diligence process, you know, at the early stages, especially as it contains to consumer companies. It's a really good question. It's probably the number one question that we get from limited partners looking at the fund, from people who are just generally curious. I guess the way I think about it is we're looking for, and I should just say off the top, about half of our portfolio is broadly consumer. And that's marketplaces, that's transactional consumer services, that's like pure apps, it's everything. And I guess in general, we look at for the same thing in our consumer and our B2B founders, which is really two core things. One is like, what's the founder's unique insight on the problem they're trying to solve? And why is that insight durable and sufficiently important to build the company around? And second, do we think the market's interesting? And I'd say we're probably 75% focused on the founder and his or her insights and 25% focused on the market. I used to tell people, I have to like your market. And now I'm just like, look, I have to just not hate it because there's lots of markets where I'm not an expert. And if it's interesting, I can be convinced. Like we've made investments in a waterless shampoo company, a next generation infant formula, um, a natural deodorant, a couple of companies that are experimenting at the edge of consuming, you know, pure con- the way the consumers interact with and produce video. 
in every one of those cases, I feel like the founder had an insight on the problem they were trying to solve, that even though they were starting from scratch, that insight would still be true and valuable 12 to 18 months from now when they had a product ideally with some level of product market fit. Which means if, you, if you're just like, oh, Instagram doesn't have this feature or Facebook can't do this thing or Snapchat makes it really hard to do this other thing, it's important to remember that those companies are not gonna stand still for 12 or 18 months while you build. So if your whole thesis is like, there's something that they haven't done yet, there's a decent chance that they'll get to it if it's interesting. If you have an argument for why they structurally can't do it or why it will be very difficult to do it, that becomes really interesting. No, that makes a lot of sense. So in order to have this, I guess, unique insight for a founder, does do you consider that a founder must have domain expertise, you know, a lot of experience working at industry, or are you finding that that's not the case? It's a really difficult question to answer. Some of our strongest portfolio company founders have deep, I think about someone like Rahul at Superhuman, he has spent a lot of time thinking about email. And uh, it's pretty difficult to build a product like that if you don't have a ton of experience. And I'd say, um, you know, the same, is, the same is true for many other founders in our portfolio. But then I'll say on the flip side, the team at ClearBank, they've done great. They didn't come to that company with a deep expertise in lending. So I think what I always ask myself is, is the founder's thesis about, sort of a new opportunity or exploiting insider knowledge. So if it's a new opportunity, oftentimes I want somebody who doesn't have a ton of baggage that comes from, you know, knowing too much about how the industry works today. The flip side is there are some businesses where like having deep insight on the way that things work is both essential and a huge advantage. And so I think we don't have a hard and fast rule. People talk about founder market fit. I don't really always subscribe to that view. I do think insights matter and sort of you have to have a right to win. But I think if you see something that no one else sees and you can execute it, many times that's sufficient. We actually do talk about founder market fit um, on the show uh, quite a bit. So it's nice to hear you know, a little bit of a different view towards founder market fit. Uh, you do invest in a lot of consumer, which we were talking about earlier, how consumer is is out, of fa- is out of favor at the moment with a lot of investors. And I was just curious as to, you know, why is that the case? I can tell you what people have told me. I can tell you also some things that I've observed, but I'm not sure are true. So a lot of my friends have told me is like, hey, you know, the biggest of big consumer companies Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, Netflix are so powerful that there's no room. So you don't want to compete with them. You know, they have so much market power. Like, don't bother. You're not going to, you can't build a next gen application. I'm like, well, okay, well then explain TikTok. Explain the resurgence of Snapchat. Like, I don't know. I guess I feel like at the moment when people tell me that you can't do something, it's probably a pretty good idea to like examine whether or not that's true. Now, look, I think trying to take Google on on search on their terms is a fool's errand. Trying to beat Facebook at their own game is a fool's errand. But I think that's generically true about any established company. You don't want to compete with them on their home turf on their terms. And so I think there's a generation of of investors who are just like, look, I don't want it. I don't want to place that bet. Two, I think we have more capital in the market than ever before. And you know, consumer companies 
a lot of people say, oh, they're binary, they either work or they don't. That's, I guess that's true to some degree, but no one seems to want to finance this sort of in-between phase where companies have some early momentum and are figuring it out, but it's not obvious that it's a breakout. So I think that makes, the if you're a seed investor, I think the feeling is, hey, the companies we invest in on the consumer side, if they're sort of pure consumer, they have to get really, really big really quickly to attract the eye of the Series A investor. But part of me feels like a lot of the people that are making investment decisions at a lot of firms feel like they have to be able to envision themselves as a customer of a product in order to invest. We don't have that restriction at Precursor. We've invested in breast pumps and sexual wellness products and all kinds of things where I'm like, I'm not the customer. I'm also not the customer of some enterprise AI ML thing that I use either. But I do feel like people apply additional scrutiny to consumer companies in terms of wanting to be able to imagine themselves using the product. And I don't, I've never understood the value in that sort of restriction. But I think it means that you have investors who are just not the consumer anymore. Maybe they were 15 or 20 years ago, right? They're just not anymore. So I think this sort of inability to identify what the problem or the customer means, they just choose to focus more on B2B software investments, which I think feel safer in this environment. I think that's a good point in terms of investors thinking that, you know, are that they're maybe the ideal customer for a company. Um, it's something that, you know, I, I, I talk also with um, Hayden Williams and he actually said that he, uh, he missed an opportunity because he was, he actually thought he was the ideal consumer and he didn't think that himself and his peers um, would actually buy the product. So we actually ended up passing and the company went on to perform um, extremely well. And he was like, it's, he almost overanalyzed. It's kind of an interesting question of, of uh, if it, it, the benefits of maybe being the ideal customer and then also not. When I think about people that I think are really good at this work, like I think about the team at Mavron or Anu at Female Founders Fund or Henry at Great Oaks or the whole team at Foreigner, what I've noticed is like, they don't have to be the customer. They know the right questions to ask and they know what a founder who has a high likelihood for success in that category looks like. And I think that's the same discipline that I see the really good B2B founders and investors that I know apply when they're looking at opportunities as well. I also just think the number of firms that are committed to consumer is just much smaller than it is for B2B. So I also wanted to talk to you about the seed stage. You responded to Elizabeth Yin's Twitter post a couple days ago, uh, who I who I had on the show as well, about how there's two these two different seed markets and with radically different round sizes and valuations. And I was just curious how you think about seed today. It's really interesting. And you know, I this is probably the number one topic I've spent time talking to my LPs about for the last year. Other than maybe just the ever-increasing size of Series A rounds, they're probably 1A and 1B in terms of things that I think about. You know, I think part of what's happened is when I started Precursor, I would say, you know, a pre-seed round that we would do was kind of three to $5 million pre-money valuation. A seed round was 10 post. So the gap between pre-seed and seed wasn't that large for founders. And what's happened now is pre-seeds kind of stayed in that three to five range for us at least, but seed pre-money valuations have gone up on average. So now the gap is bigger. And what I've started to see is for some firms, they, 
they I've seen several times some of the largest Series A firms, like a General Catalyst, coming down market to participate in a large seed, a two or three million dollar seed round. And just this week, in the last, I say this last month, I've seen probably four or five transactions where the pre-money valuation for a pre-launch company with remarkably talented credentialed founders from companies and schools you would recognize are raising two to $3 million on a $20 million pre-money valuation. Now, if you think about it, if you are a big Series A firm and you can get an allocation in that round and the founder doesn't care about signaling, or if you can convince the founder that signaling is not real, which I, I believe that to be true, then what's the harm? And if you're a $150 million or $200 million seed fund, you can actually afford to pay that price. You can write a $2 million check to get your 10%. You won't be happy about it. It's gonna be kind of double what, you're, what you wanna pay, but you, your fund model like will support it. And so what I've seen is there's a set of founders who have the capacity to walk into a big seed fund or a big series A fund and just say, this is what I've done in my previous career. This is the thing that I'm doing now. And those rounds are super competitive and they're competitive with people who are not price sensitive at seed because ultimately when the company works, they're going to buy the majority of their ownership at the A. And then there's a bunch of people who are just not, I would say it's the difference between being employee number one at Stripe and employee number 1000. You just think if you just zoom out, might even think about it. If you're an early employee at one of these marquee companies, things are different for you. One, you have the, the, the Silicon Valley honor of being a, you know, a single digit employee count or, or low double digit employee count that has currency. Second, you probably actually know the founders and those founders can make introductions to you to VCs who know them. And those founders don't, not only know you, they generally speaking have firsthand experience of your work product. So you're going to get meetings that employee 1000 will probably never get. And by getting those meetings and being in those rooms and having the social capital of being from a being an early person from a really successful company with the blessing and encouragement of the CEO, like that's that's magic in this market. That opens a ton of doors. Right. The access that you get to a network. Now, for me, the big question is, what do those companies have to achieve in order to unlock the next round? And one of the things I've mentioned to our investors is, for us, our best companies are on either end of the barbell. Some of our best companies raised relatively small pre-seed rounds on relatively low valuations. And the other end of the spectrum is two of our other best companies were expensive at the seed, expensive at the A, and expensive at the B. And so I think if you are just sort of religiously focused on price, there is some risk that you miss out on the opportunity to get into really great companies. But I think just because the scale of the outcome for the biggest winners has gotten larger doesn't mean that the average company is going to have a substantially larger outcome than before. What what are some what are some differences in your diligence process when evaluating consumer versus enterprise startups? I think for the consumer startups for me, it really comes down to like where are you going to spend your time and energy in terms of building out the brand. I do think there was a period of time when social media advertising was less expensive. That you could really, I was probably more open to a pitch that was like, we're just really good at paid customer acquisition. And if you give us money, we're, we're really good at figuring out how to get the most out of Facebook or Instagram, and we're going to use your investment dollars. 
to, to acquire a bunch of customers and like paid is going to be a really large and significant chunk of what we do. That's just not a story that's interesting to me anymore. The question to me is always like, how are you going to build an authentic and interesting connection with your customer? And, and what hypotheses or theories do you have about where you can go find your customer in clever, creative, and relatively inexpensive ways in the early day? I wanted to also touch on uh, pivoting. How do you think about pivoting in the early stages and founders pivoting until they see something stick? So I think there's like pivoting and flailing to me are like two different things. To me, pivoting is, hey, we tried something. It didn't work. Here's why it didn't work. And here's what we're going to do differently. I would say many, many of our portfolio companies will make some tweaks to the model based on first contact with customers. I'd say the most common ones are, oh, we wanted to do this as a B2C thing, but now we're going to be B2B to C or B2B. It just turned out that like getting the customer to care or getting the customer to pay was too hard. That to me is totally fine. What, I, what makes me way more concerned is flailing, which is like this thing didn't work. So now we're going to go try something dramatically different where we have no qualification whatsoever, but we're gonna make it work. And like, if I think about sort of the, the ClearBank team, you know, they started out wanting to build a financial services product, but for a really different audience. And their original audience ended up not being the right audience. And so the discovery process led them to something that was a much better idea in the end. I'm not sure though that they would have gotten there if they hadn't started where they started which again is why I try to focus so much on the founders and their insights and motivations, because I never mind if someone sort of stays in the same domain and takes a different crack at what they're doing. But if someone's like, Hey, we're going to pivot from consumer messaging to enterprise data infrastructure. There aren't many teams that are equally good at both of those things. How do you think about portfolio con uh, composition uh, when you invest in just a variety of verticals? It's interesting. So, I'll tell you my high level thesis is I think most categories only produce a handful of winners. So a lot of our limited partners and prospects ask me, well, how can you in the morning think about an electric vertical takeoff and landing cargo drone and in the evening think about a waterless shampoo company? I'm like, I don't know. I think at the stage where we invest, most companies have the same set of challenges, which is building and launching a product, finding product market fit and figuring out your assumptions about the underlying drivers of the business, do they work and are they true? I think that's kind of a generalized problem solving exercise that every company has to go through. And so I guess for me, I think we try to never have two companies doing the same thing, which for me has been a good discipline because sometimes I'll meet a company and I'll say, wow, this team is really great. They're not maybe the best team that I could ever envision seeing in this category. So we're going to wait and see if we see that one team. Two, by having a lot of variety, you learn that like, a lot of problems in startup life are common, but the specifics of their market and industry influence what they should do. And you can actually learn that from spending time with the founders themselves. They'll educate you on that stuff. And I also feel like I never want to be so heavy in any one category that if that category goes out of favor, that we'll have a bunch of companies in our portfolio that we can't finance. So I'm not, we're not a billion dollar fund. We're just say, hey, if you know, advertising technology or education technology goes out of goes out of favor for three years, we have the balance sheet that we can continue to support those companies as they're doing well. 
we, we don't have that. So I always try to say like, let's not go too crazy in any one category, knowing that sometimes sectors fall out of favor. And for us, it's, we don't want to be caught with a really concentrated portfolio of companies that are in a really out of favor sector. So how, how long roughly does your due diligence process take just for interest? Because of course you have to be juggling with all these different sectors that you're thinking about. You know, the rule I, the rule of thumb I try to use is take as many first meetings as you can to meet people and learn and be very stingy with second meetings. So what that really means is the odds of you, like my guess is the odds of you get to a second meeting with us, the odds are pretty high that we're going to end up taking a really serious look at what you're doing. And so I would say, you know, the fastest diligence processes we've had have been, you know, we've, I've made, like I made the decision to invest in CoStar in the, in the first call I had with the founder. I just thought she had, I just thought Banu knew so much more about astrology than I would ever know. And she was like very clear about the things about the business that she'd already figured out and the things about the business that were still very TBD. And I, I found that honesty and insight really refreshing. And I was like, this totally resonates with me. And if I don't commit now, there might not be an allocation for me in the future. And so I think the thing you get with experience too, is you start to get a feel for, well, what is a company that's like, if I see a company, wow, this totally makes sense. You have to sort of prioritize working on those because if it's really obvious, it makes sense to me, the odds that another smart person are going to also see it the same way to me, I just assume it's high. I love your example of CoStar, actually. We've, they've been brought up a couple times as well on this show. What's your advice for founders that, for whatever reason, don't have a network of VCs or don't have access to a warm introduction uh, to speak to venture capitalists or live in secondary or tertiary markets? It's something we spend a lot of time thinking about. And for people um, who are curious, I'd really recommend you read Dell Johnson's article on... Um, basically talking about the tyranny of warm intros. I'm of two minds about this. We try to read and respond to every well-written cold outreach with emphasis being like, it has to be well-written. If it's like dear dollar sign F name, I'm like, well, you didn't put any effort into it. Like, why should I feel obligated to look at this? But honestly, most people who write them take time. And so we try to look at them all and we try to respond to them all. I wish I could say we, we get it right a thousand, a hundred percent of the time, we, we don't. We, we certainly do not get it right every time, but we try. And to date, I don't think we've yet gotten anything through the cold channel, but I bet you that'll change in fun too. Or uh, what I will say too is just, we have a really large portfolio. And so I encourage our portfolio company founders to send people our way. But I also tell them like, it's not your job to do my job. So if somebody wants to get in touch with me and you think they're a reasonable person, just send it. Like, you don't, I'm not gonna judge you. If you tell me like, hey, I met this person at a party and they wanna meet you, that's different than you telling me this is my best friend and you know, my bridesmaid. That second one will get treated differently. So I think there's this balanced adventure where, you know, I really value the fact that our portfolio companies that are happy working with us, send us their friends as prospects and I want to treat those people well, but I'm also totally cognizant of the fact that we only have, we only in quotes have 300, 325 founders in our portfolio network. That's not the whole market. But I think the biggest challenge, if you're not in a major market, and to me that's San Francisco, LA or New York, we have companies in probably 19 or 20 states. And the biggest challenge I've seen is not founders. There are great founders everywhere. The biggest challenge I've seen is team building 
And specifically, if you're going to build a team in one of these other markets, can you actually, and you want to be co-located, can you actually get enough access to experience startup-friendly talent to build your company? And of those two things, I actually think startup-friendly is more important oftentimes than experience. Startup-friendly is about attitude, about risk-seeking, about the willingness to trade some cash for equity. And we found, candidly, like some challenges recruiting in some other geographies where people just don't have as much experience taking risks on startups and seeing it pay off. I was also just wondering how you felt about building remote teams. That's a hard question to answer. I'll, I'll, I'm going to take a slightly different tact on that question, and hopefully I'll get to what you, the, the, the meat of what you brought up. So for a lot of the companies that we talk to that are not in San Francisco, New York, or Los Angeles, I always want to know, like, hey, what's the plan? Like, are you trying to build the sort of hero company in Cincinnati? Are you trying to build the hero company in Boulder? Or is this a headquarters decision? Because we certainly have companies that have started in other places and moved to major metros once the business started to scale and recruiting became more of an issue. And I think that's wise. Like the money they had went a lot further because they were spending those sort of product market fit dollars in a low cost environment. So I always want to know like, does the founder really, does the founder have roots and a plan to build a company where they are when I meet them? Or, is, or are they open to moving? And if they're open to moving, I just have a lot fewer questions. If they're not open to moving, the question's like, well, do you have any experience managing and recruiting remote teams? And uh, uh, for a lot of companies in our portfolio, I say, if you don't have experience, try to simplify your life and, and think hard about whether you wanna hire people to work remotely for your company when you have no experience with remote and they have no experience with remote. That to me has historically been a, difficult, difficult combination to have work out. That makes sense how you think about it, looking at the entrepreneur's experience managing remote teams. What, what consumer trends are you most focused on? It's funny. I feel like many of the things that I've become interested in, I've really backed into them. Like they weren't, like we didn't have a thesis on clean beauty or on like basically reducing waste. We've made a bunch of investments in and around that theme, whether that's zero, our sort of zero packaging reusable groceries, grocery concept or uh, Bobby Baby on the formula side or, or OA Hair Care on the hair care side or Curie on the deodorant. Like, we've just made a bunch of investments. And so it's weird. Most of, our, most of our investment themes are, I can tell you what they are in retrospect, but I didn't go into last year saying, I'm going to find a bunch of companies that are working on XYZ problem. Because I actually think founders are better at picking problems than I am. Like many times they come and I'm like, wow, the thing you just told me about, I had no idea it was a thing, but it's super fascinating. And I would say many of our best companies are in categories where I did not have a prepared mind thesis, but I was open to the idea that I could learn something from them. I think it also plays into your portfolio construction. And so I think I admire my friends in Series A land who will spend a bunch of time building a thesis on consumer fintech, right? And they'll find the one company that fits their thesis and they'll go big on it. I think that makes sense if your job is to make, and your portfolio construction says, hey, people in this firm are going to make one or two really meaningful 
commitments per year. My whole problem with sort of being too thesis driven is one, our portfolio construction would suggest we need far more theses than I could ever think about. And two, like I worry a lot about just missing out on the serendipity of somebody smart working on a problem you never even thought of. Like I think about like Alex Robinson at Juniper Square, I didn't know anything about what happens behind the scenes in commercial real estate transactions, but that's turned out to be like a really good company with really talented management and really good execution. And if I'd said, oh, I'm only looking at marketplaces and you know, B2B SaaS for the future of work, I would miss out on it. And so I think what I will say is it takes a lot more work to educate your network on what to send you when you're a broad omnivore generalist. I just tell people like, we will look at almost anything unless it requires deep understanding of physics, chemistry, biology, or computer science. If it's one of those categories like deep, not, I'm not your guy. Got it. That makes sense. Why not to be thesis driven? What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? There's so many things I would change. I think, and maybe this is just because of the amount of money in the system and the nature of, of power law. I think we've, and maybe we're coming out of this. I think for the last two years, there were conversations I was a part of where it just felt like whichever company had raised the most money was preordained the winner in a category. And I feel like that just doesn't always play out that way. And somehow we got stuck on this narrative that like, oh, company X, Y, and Z has raised so much money. They're clearly going to win the category. And I'm like, well, why does that have to be the case? Nowhere is it guaranteed that they'll spend it correctly. Nowhere is it guaranteed that capital is actually the limiter. And I think in a post-WeWork world, I'm glad to see people going back and revisiting that assumption because I think it's a terrible disservice to companies that do not, you know, it's, it's a terrible punishment for efficient companies. And I think it's also a perversion of reality. So that, that's one thing I hope we continue to revisit that belief as a business. And second, I feel like, I wish as a group, people took more, and maybe this is just self-serving, I wish as a, in general, firms took more risk on people. I think the problem is if the more successful you are in this business, the better your network becomes. And you can, at some point in your career, just cherry pick the most experienced, qualified, easy to invest, low risk people that you know. And you can do that with like really little effort, right? Like they'll find you. Like if you're an investor in Uber and Twitter and some of these big companies, like the executives of those companies, a hundred people deep are gonna start companies and you could just meet them and not really think about like, well, who am I not meeting and what am I not seeing? And I wish there was a greater embrace of like the idea that there are great founders outside of the people that we know and outside of the backgrounds that we know and that more capital went to those people. It just requires a lot of effort to not fund your friends and not fund the things that are easy. Right. I completely agree with you and and you know funding funding those that are that are outside your network. So what's one book that has impacted you personally and one book that has impacted you professionally? Um a book that has impacted me professionally is called I'll, a lot of them. I'll pick one. I'll, can I give you two. Absolutely. So one is a book called The Geography of Jobs by Moretti. And it's sort of, I mean, I studied econ in college, so I'm kind of a sucker for these kinds of books. It just talks about sort of the two-sided incentives for talent aggregation in some of these, in like a San Francisco, New York, or LA. And just like what makes that two-sided talent 
you know, obviously for the job seeker, it's attractive to be in a place where jobs are plentiful. And for the employer, it's great to be in a place where employees are plentiful and like what it takes to start that flywheel and why they're hard to break. And it actually had a lot. It informed a lot of my thinking about investing outside of some of the core geos where we invest. And I would say on a personal level, boy, uh, you know, David McCullough's biography of the Wright brothers really for me on a personal level, I don't want to say it was inspiring, but it was eye-opening because I had not realized, this sounds probably silly, like I had not realized how dangerous flight was when they were first getting started. And I didn't realize how many personal risks the Wright brothers took in learning how to fly. But also I didn't realize how much progress other people had also made who are not the Wright brothers, who have sort of not been covered, at least domestically, to the same degree historically. And I would just say, like, it was one of these really interesting books just that was like a, a personal, for me, reflection on just like how stories get told, the sacrifice, physical and financial, it takes oftentimes to bring your vision into, into the world. And also just sort of um, how important circumstances are in life, like where you find yourself and all the other technological innovations that had to happen in order to make them successful. It was just one of these books where I, I went into it thinking I understood their story, but had really walked away from like, I knew nothing. There's one more I want to put in a plug for. Um, it's a book called Who Gets What and Why. And it's a book about market design. And it talks about everything from allocating uh, public school slots in the city of Boston to the kidney registry. And for me, I like, I like, we do a lot of investing at Precursor, which I think is fundamentally about business model innovation. It's less about technical breakthroughs, like that's not my thing. And I just find like reading that book and thinking about like clever ways to solve for market failures is something that I think is really useful if you're a startup founder. And that book is just chock full of really interesting problems. And the interesting thing about the book is it's not a purely economic treatise about, you know, utility maximization, it talks a lot about the importance of fairness and outcomes. And particularly if you're thinking about who gets access to public, you know, to prestigious public schools and how do you allocate kidneys. I just thought it was a fascinating book, chock full of interesting examples about how do you design markets when you can't necessarily use price exclusively as a determinant of who gets what. Those all sound really great. We'll certainly have to check them out. The last book, Who Gets What and Why, is currently on my reading list. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders of consumer companies? In this sort of readjustment period that we're going through in the investment world right now, which is, I think, it, we're shifting from sort of growth at all costs, grow, 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 to something that feels a little bit more like grow, but be mindful that it has to work out in the end. I would just say for consumer companies, you're going to feel that pressure even more than your B2B partners will. And so be mindful that the bar for evidence around traction and business model is, is higher than it's ever been for companies in the consumer space, which is not a problem. I just think it means you have to validate that stuff sooner. And also, I would say for many consumer companies, the range of financing options you have at your disposal is much, wise, is much wider than venture capital. And the best founders that I know are thinking about, well, how do I mix venture capital maybe with some kind of revenue-based financing to maybe get to a place where we can take private equity and different, like they're just thinking in much more creative ways about their capital structure. 
I think that's not something that's as easy to do for a B2B company. That's that's a great piece of advice. We haven't gone on to different ways of fundraising before, I don't think, on this show, that founders should be thinking about that as well when they're starting consumer companies and kind of get uh, creative in different, in different avenues that you can use. Charles, this this has been really, really fun. I, I, I hope you've had a great time. Um, I really, really enjoyed chatting with you and I really appreciate all the insights. I mean, thank you again so much for, for being here. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. And there you have it. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with Charles and learning about how he invests at the early stages. You can follow Charles on Twitter at C. Hudson. If you're a founder and work on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you could DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. And until next time.